Oh, that we would not have superficial mercy, but scandalous mercy. A mercy that triumphs over merciless politics and man-made laws. God's kingdom has no borders and he holds all things and peoples in love and justice and mercy. Dios es la única fuente de misericordia cuando se nos acaba. Él es el Dios que ve a las multitudes y siente compasión por ellas porque están laceradas y abatidas. Son cuerpos de diferentes colores, diferentes idiomas, cuerpos inmigrantes, cuerpos incapacitados, cuerpos de mujeres y hombres, cuerpos hambrientos y sedientos, desnudos y pobres, como ovejas que no tienen pastor. Pero este pastor es experimentado en quebranto, pues su cuerpo también fue marginado y latigado. God and only God is the source of this mercy when we run out of it. He is the God who sees the multitudes and feels compassion for them because they are lacerated and beat up bodies. They are different colored bodies and immigrant bodies and differently abled bodies and gendered bodies and hungry and thirsty bodies, naked and poor bodies, violated bodies like sheep without a shepherd and he feels compassion from his insides. Yet this shepherd, is well acquainted with the grief of marginalized bodies in every lashing that he ever received. Have you ever listened to season one of the podcast Up and Vanished? If you haven't, it's a true crime investigative reporting podcast, which are my absolute favorites. Episode one of Up and Vanished begins with the host, Payne Lindsay, talking about how he decided to start the podcast. He explains that he's a filmmaker from Atlanta, and he got inspired by Serial, another true crime investigative podcast that you may have heard of, and the Netflix series Making a Murderer. Payne says that he got really into both and thought, what if I make one of those? Now, he didn't have any prior experience podcasting or investigative reporting for that matter. He just wanted to tell a story. The first couple of episodes are endearing on his end as he admits several times that he doesn't really know what he's doing. And I just want to say, I resonate with pain when it comes to podcasting. I don't really know what I'm doing either. But you see, just like pain, I want to share a story. Not one single story, not only my story, but many different stories by many different people. As Peter Forbes once said, stories create community. They enable us to see through the eyes of other people and open us up to the claims of others. Stories build bridges. And that's really just my aim through this podcast. So... I welcome you to the very first episode of The Protagonistas. Before we get into it, I'd like to share a tiny piece of my story. I recently went through my own mega painful and mega beautiful faith shift. Most of us like to call it deconstruction. Now, my deconstruction was odd. I didn't grow up in the church, and in my early 20s, I had your quintessential, radical, very evangelical salvation experience at a big and hip Christian conference. Now, I have a lot of opinions about what happened that weekend, but there's no doubt about it that it utterly and completely changed my life. Almost immediately after, I couldn't shake the really intense tug I felt toward pursuing this faith thing deeper. I didn't know what that meant at the time. So I quit my job and spent some time visiting different ministries across the globe, trying to figure out what in the world this whole Christianity thing was about. 
I got back, I led Bible studies, I helped lead college ministries, I spoke at women's events, and I just started writing. Now, because I didn't have any background in Christianity, all I knew was the megachurch in my area. And while I, quote, grew a lot there, I was reminded, and essentially even taught for the first time, that certain rules applied to me because of my gender. You see, I had grown up in a Cuban household with a single mom and a single grandma for the first chunk of my life, both strong and independent women. So becoming a Christian and having to learn to submit to quote, male headship was foreign and kind of uncomfortable. But because I wanted to be right by this new faith, this new life I had found, I spent the next couple of years trying to suppress my Enneagram 8-ness, for those of you who aren't into the Enneagram. And for those of you that aren't, I tried to suppress my intensity and assertiveness and passion and just Cuban womanness. It was hard. A lot of tears shed, a lot of nights crying into my pillow asking God why in the world he made me this way. Why was I too much? I really thought becoming submissive and quiet was right and godly, and I loved and still love Jesus. And so because I was taught that suffering was just part of it, I suffered. A lot. Now things got interesting because I had always felt this intense desire to lead and many people around me saw it and affirmed it in me. So I thought, okay, well, why don't I develop that? Sure, I believed people around me when they said it was God's design for me to lead in very limited capacities, but I did trust that God would guide me in that. So naturally, I decided to start seminary. I legitimately didn't know why or what in the world I'd do with a seminary degree as a woman. It was sort of just an on a whim decision. All I knew is that I really love Jesus, and that's the natural next step if you want to do ministry full-time, right? Well, not really. But I packed my bags, moved from Miami, Florida to New Orleans, Louisiana to start seminary. As surprising as it may sound, my Latinaness began to really smack me in the face. You see, if you're Cuban in Miami, you know nothing of being a minority. Most of Miami is Cuban, so you can imagine the culture shock moving to a small Christian subculture in southern Louisiana. But I may do, as we all do. The first semester of seminary, I began the Biblical Greek track. And when I got to my second Greek exegesis, which happened to be on the book of Acts, things began to really change. I learned about the importance of translation, the details of first century Greco-Roman and Judaic cultures. I learned about patron-client societies, household codes, the context of each city that Paul visited and wrote letters to. I learned about the cult of Artemis and about women like Phoebe and Lydia and Junia and Priscilla. Now don't get me wrong, my Greek professors were teaching at a complementarian seminary, so they were careful about their words. But they were also very honest about the text. And there are just some things that you can't explain away, especially when you get really deep into the thick of exegesis. And this opened a whole new world for me. I just couldn't believe it. If these were New Testament experts, and they just couldn't ignore very obvious things in the text that led to very, quote, controversial conclusions, then what did this mean for me as a woman? Well, to make a long story short, I spent the next year digging really deep into this. In fact, I started writing my own personal research paper on women and the Bible. I started with Genesis and I used pretty conservative sources. After a few months, I was 12 single spaced pages in with footnotes and everything. And what I had hoped to be true started to become a reality. But. The more certain I became about women in scripture, the harder things got. I felt really sad. It felt like a sense of betrayal, like I had been lied to for so long, been forced to believe something was truth and fact when it was an interpretation, an opinion. 
It so happened that my new husband was coming to the same conclusions on his own through his study of church history. And after several very, very, very painful encounters with professors and pastors, which I'll eventually share one day, we decided it was time to leave the context we were in in search of, well, we honestly didn't know at the time. Circumstance after circumstance, prayer, tears, more prayer, more tears led us to quit our jobs, sell our belongings, pack what we could into our Kia Optima and head west to California so I could finish my studies at Fuller Seminary. We didn't know much about California or Fuller. All I knew is that the website had an entire section outlining their biblical stance on women in ministry and really that's all I needed. The first Sunday here, I heard my first woman preacher. I cried. And then I came home and I wrote a blog post about it titled My Official Breakup with Complementarian Theology. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, let's just say that blog post lost me a lot of friends. I was called a heretic, told I needed to repent, you know, the whole nine. Yes, my views had changed on a lot of things, but it was as if I had crossed over to the dark side, you know, a la Rod Bell. <laughs> so on one hand, I was am experiencing this incredible and empowering freedom as a woman for the first time and not just a woman but as a latina woman it's beautiful but on the other hand i'm experiencing the utter vitriol that can come from quote both sides of christianity it can be ugly and painful and i'll admit i've played my part in that too and so i call this journey my seven stages of spiritual grief my husband Taylor and I walk through a constant cycle of shock and denial and anger and sadness and bitterness, but also forgiveness and healing. And it's weird, every time I think I'm good, I read a really discouraging tweet by a professing Christian or a social justice statement or something that reminds me I have a lot more forgiving and healing left to do. Like I said earlier, I think stories do that. They allow us the opportunity to humanize the other. They help break down walls of hostility and build bridges in their place. And so that's my intention with this podcast, that we may learn together and grow together and forgive together and heal together. And so for the remainder of this first episode, you're going to be hearing me chat with Ines Velasquez McBride. She is a Latina from Nicaragua, a phenomenal preacher, as you heard in the beginning of the episode. She's a pastor and she too spent quite some time in the South, in fact, in the same area of Arkansas that my husband is from. And so, I hope you enjoy. Oh, and also, remember when I said that podcaster Payne Lindsay is really honest in the beginning episodes about how new he is to this? Well, this is my disclaimer. This was my first recording, and I didn't get the microphone quite right. So, while the content is great, the audio quality isn't. But I promise... The next episodes are better, so please hang in there. I'm sitting here with my hermana y amiga, uh, Ines, and um, I'm super excited to have Ines speaking with us today, mainly because when I met her, I was sitting in like my second class of Fuller, I think, mm -hmm. and we were going around like kind of introducing ourselves, yeah. and I think you went first or something, and you're like, yeah, I'm a Latina from Arkansas, and I was like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? I know. I'm like, what are you doing here? What are you doing um, in Arkansas? That's yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, 
and yeah, so my, my husband's from Arkansas, so I spent some time there. Not a lot of people know about Arkansas or spend time there. So yeah, I was I was super interested in getting to know you. So I approached him like, talk to me about just life. And actually, I think a week after that, you preached at oh, yes. Fuller. Fuller Chapel. Yes. In and October. I was like, oh. Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes. It was mm-hmm. it was amazing. So that's why I wanted to, to approach you. So I'm glad we became friends. Mm-hmm. And um, Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> and being my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have a couple questions for Ines today. And I want to know. So well, let's just get right into it as far as your background, talking about Arkansas. Um, how was that process? You're from Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. And so just how did you end up in Arkansas? Mm-hmm. And what was your experience? Mm-hmm first getting there you know it's it's uh funny how it, i did get to arkansas but i have to tell the story of just my life i was born in spain my mother was spanish and uh, my father is nicaraguan but i didn't i did not live in spain just for about a year during the war um or post-war and so we lived in nicaragua most of my life till i graduated from high school um and my parents were doing uh humanitarian work in nicaragua my father was bivocational he was a pastor and a businessman and my mom was a spanish diplomat she was helping with foreign aid between Spain and Nicaragua because we lived in Nicaragua during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, difficult years. Mm -hmm. Um, We lived through the Revolución in Mm -hmm. 1979. I was a young, young, young girl. (laughs) Young little girl. (laughs) And uh, during that time, during that time, my parents decided to stay and not leave. A lot of Nicaraguans had to leave, and there was a lot of violence, a lot of oppression, mm. hunger, famine, uh, instability, political yeah. instability, danger. But we stayed, and so that was a very formative. That was my childhood and my teenagehood, mm. and up until I graduated from high school. So all of that, all those stories shaped wow. me. Now I'm sure I'll keep talking about those stories later mm. as they come up. So when I came to the U.S., I came to go to college. I came to get educated. You know. United States, like mm-hmm. many people wanted to do that, and I got a scholarship to come. But while I was in, I was in college, I came to be a doctor. That's what I mm-hmm. wanted to come because I wanted to go back to Nicaragua and help mm-hmm. because that was such a need. But while I was in college, uh, I felt called to the ministry, but I did not know what that meant. Mm-hmm. I did, I, you know, I'm a pastor now. I've been a pastor for 17, 18 years. Been in the ministry 20 years, but you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. I never saw a female preacher mm-hmm. in Nicaragua. I never saw a female pastor in Nicaragua, and so I couldn't even imagine it. So when I moved from uh, Texas, I was going to college in Texas, to Arkansas, I was to help plant a church. And the vision of the church drew me to Arkansas. It drew me because it was an intentionally multi-ethnic church. The Latino population was growing in Arkansas. It was a relatively new immigrant community in Arkansas, I guess because Miami was getting full. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was getting full. <laughs> but it was a very new community. And so Arkansas was not ready for that explosion mm. of Latinos, first generation. And then, then I saw the first the first set of second-generation Latinos that graduated from high school oh. in Arkansas. Wow. Now, I don't think we can say that about California. There's, you know, seven, no, eight, mm-hmm. nine, ten generations. Yeah. Or, or, or Texas or, mm-hmm. or Florida, yeah. you know. But Arkansas, very new. And so God called me there to help integrate the Latino community into a faith community, into a local wow. church. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so you said that you, while you were in college, you felt called to, into the ministry. And so what was that like? How did that happen? Like, how 
how did you go from wanting to be a doctor to wanting to be a preacher yes. or a pastor? I think in my heart, I have a heart for redemption and a heart for healing. Mm-hmm. And what what I saw in myself is because of our work in Nicaragua, I was my parents were very involved in bringing medical aid and dental aid to Nicaragua during the war and post-war uh, because of there was no medicine, you know, few doctors, abject poverty. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this is how I'm going to offer my life to, to the world. I'm going to become a doctor. And I, 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 I love to heal and I see injustice and I want to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I want to fix it, you know. Yeah. But it had, it had become such a strong ambition in my heart and in, in my mind that it became all, all about me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be number one. I was very competitive. And uh, God was asking me to lay that down and say, no, I have plans for your life, but will you follow me when, mm-hmm. wherever I tell you to go instead yeah. of you asking me to bless your plans? Mm-hmm. And that's what it felt like. So it's not that being a doctor is bad. Yeah. But I was telling God to bless my plans. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, Christianizing it and sanitizing mm-hmm. it and sanctifying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Lord said, no, I want you to be a different kind of fisherwoman. You know, mm-hmm. I want you to fish for other things. Um, and, and my heart for healing and for justice and for redemption uh, came through my voice. But I did not even know it. Mm-hmm. did not even know that I was being called mm-hmm. to ministry. So how did I begin? It, see, it didn't even begin in college. Um, I think God was calling me to be a pastor before I even knew that I could be a pastor or that a woman could be a pastor because yeah. I never saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time that I translated a, a sermon, I was 14 years old oh, wow. in Nicaragua. A white American preacher came to our church and uh, nobody else spoke English except my dad. And my dad said, uh, my daughter's going to translate for you today. And then the man did not want me to translate because wow. I was a woman, because I was young. I was 14 years old. <laughs> Listen, I didn't want to translate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and wow. so I just think it would be a better idea to have a man. And w- what he was saying was mm. that yeah. um, that he felt more comfortable with a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, yeah, I feel comfortable too with my dad translating mm-hmm. and not me. And my dad said, no, you're going to translate. Wow. My dad had saw something in me that he was drawing out before I even mm. knew that there was a call in my life to preach and speak and so the first time I, I, I like to tell the story because the first time I preach I want to say it wasn't my sermon I was translating mm-hmm. someone else's sermon oh, yeah but it was the first time that I heard my voice yeah. my voice I was I was sick to death I was like I was throwing up in the bathroom mm-hmm. before preaching before translating that. Just... I was nervous oh I was a very gosh. bashful little girl oh. young girl very shy and wow, just thinking of getting up there yeah and you never saw women up there yeah you couldn't get couldn't get up there mm-hmm. as a woman and so for my dad to push and rewrite that narrative interrupt the narrative of mm-hmm. very patriarchal you know mm-hmm. typically patriarchal society in Nicaragua to interrupt that and to say no my daughter's going to translate for wow. you today it changed the trajectory of my life wow. because he helped me find my voice so I get up there and all the nerves leave me, even though I had just been throwing up in the bathroom before. I was so nervous. My throat was closing up. Oh my gosh. Uh, but once I got up there, it was um, the, also not just the first time that I heard my voice come out of my mouth it, with a strength I had never heard before. It was the first time that I felt the power of the Holy Spirit mm. just come upon me. I literally felt like the Spirit overshadowed me mm. and my mouth was just released and open to speak with a lot of power and I was thinking to myself during the sermon who is this wow where did this voice come from and I felt even a heat just from head to toe and I sat back down and the same man who was upset Mm -hmm. that a woman was translating for him 
14 years old, you know, in hot church, all the abuelitas were like fanning themselves, 100% humidity in Nicaragua, you know, I felt like I was going to pass out. Oh my gosh. He looked at me and said, I had never had an interpreter wow. to speak with such passion and translate with such passion before. And like 20 or 25 people came to Christ that morning. Oh my goodness. And I said, I have never heard my voice like that before. And so I say that because every small thing that happens in our stories is formative. Every small thing becomes a memory of how uh, God is calling your yeah. name and you're living into that calling before you even know that there's even a calling. Mm -hmm. Like there's a calling and then there comes the naming. Mm -hmm. You hear a calling, you know, I heard a calling in college, but really he called me that day. Yeah. When he said, no, you through my father's voice. No, you're going you're gonna to translate mm -hmm. today. Wow. But then even in college, uh, the naming came later. The name of pastor came much, much later. Mm -hmm. I didn't believe women could preach. I didn't believe women could be pastors. I never saw it, so I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah. Wow. You know, so it's been yeah. a journey finding my voice and living into that name. Yeah, that's amazing. What a good story. Mm -hmm. And so going from, so you didn't think that women could be pastors. And so what changed? How did that narrative change for you? Started uh, Once I was here in college, um, I started seeing women preach, even if it's just it was just for women's ministries. Mm -hmm. I saw strong, solid theology uh, like Beth Moore, mm -hmm. Priscilla Shire, and mm -hmm. there was something in them that awakened something in me as mm -hmm. well. Even though I was the son of a preacher man, mm -hmm. but there was something about seeing a woman preach that awakened something in me that listening to my father didn't awaken yeah. fully in me. Yeah. And so even the first time that I translated, uh, one of the pastors was sitting there and he said, I felt like I saw, I was seeing your dad preach, mm -hmm. like the strength in my voice. Yeah. However, when I saw women like that more or Priscilla Shire uh, preach, there was a strength in their voice that they didn't have to be men. They were not preaching as men. They were not leading like men. And it, it awakened something in me to go, oh, could, could it be yeah. that I could do that as well? Could it be that I could preach? And could it be could, that I could embrace my femininity yeah. in that voice? Mm. You know? But even then, I was I just was not sure. Mm. And I, again, it's because it wasn't modeled. It wasn't mm. represented. And mm. so it took me a long time until I was at the church that I planted in Arkansas. The church affirmed my calling. And the mm -hmm. church drew it out of me and said, you are a pastor. And I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not a pastor. No, you are a preacher. I'm like, no, I just, I like to teach and I like to share, mm -hmm. you know. I I had flawed theology mm -hmm. that couldn't even allow me. You know, I had these uh, these obscure passages in scripture that made me think, oh, no, 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 women mm -hmm. should be silent. Oh, no, 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 I should mm -hmm. stay in my corner. Oh, no, I should, um, I should be afraid of the strength of my voice, whether it was, disease theology mm -hmm. or just social norms yeah yeah you know coming from mm -hmm. a patriarchal latino machista yeah even though my father was not that he pushed me i was still surrounded by that mm -hmm. toxic water mm -hmm. it was the toxic air we were all breathing mm -hmm. and so i would say my father was a tremendous disruptor of that narrative uh, but still you don't get there overnight so you mm -hmm. can snap out of it overnight oh, yeah. either mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah i can totally see that it once you're like, you don't, what's that saying that a fish doesn't know it's in water, you know? Exactly. It's like that. Like, you don't, same thing with me. You know, that was my experience as well. And it's like, right. you have to constantly suppress this. Like, I know I'm gifted in this way. I know I feel called right. to this. And like, I just right. have to keep shutting it down and shutting it down Shut and shutting it down. It down. So. Because you may seem like too much yeah. and not enough. Yeah. Too bossy, too yeah. loud, too much woman, mm -hmm. right? And so even though my father had a strength that he was pushing me, pushing mm -hmm. me to be up front, pushing me to lead mm -hmm. from a very, very young age, 
um, I still, what I saw around me pushed me to hold back, exactly. pushed me to suppress, pushed me to silence myself, pushed me to mute myself mm-hmm. and to be afraid of the strength of my voice. Mm-hmm. Especially that when I did speak up, people didn't know what to do with the strength mm-hmm. of my voice, even at a very young age. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of leadership in, the, in my church in Nicaragua. From a very young age, you're given a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. spiritual responsibility. Mm-hmm. At 14 years old, I also became the secretary of my church in Nicaragua. Oh who does that? <laughs> That's, That's kind of crazy. And it's not the woman who answers the phone. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual role in the wow. church because it was a congregational-led church. That meant I could go to congregational meetings and speak into issues of the church. I was 14 years old. <laughs> All that let you be in the room was that you be baptized. And wow. I was baptized. Yeah. <laughs> I'd been baptized two years before. Yeah. And so from a very young age, our theology... It's crazy, even though it suppressed women from being mm-hmm. behind the pulpit, at least in my church. Um, nevertheless, it invited me. Mm-hmm. At 14 years old, I would go to church meetings and speak into issues. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, there always seems to be almost like, like double, like that's what happened to me. I was in a complementarian setting, but I'm being affirmed to learn right. and grow. Right. And so I'm like, but wait. And then, you know, it's like that wall that you hit, but it's like, it doesn't make sense, you know, like right. it, it doesn't make sense what you're telling me I can't do, but yet you're still giving me the tools and you're still affirming me right. to do this. So right. it's, you know, like, so I totally, totally understand that. And um, your obvious calling to preach was affirmed because Fuller awarded you the Ian Pitts Watson <laughs> preaching yeah. award. So for sure. Yeah, so it's clear that it wasn't just you or it wasn't just, you know, it was something like you said, your church even affirmed you. And, you know, so it takes a lot, you know, when you when you feel called to something or when you, when you sense God pushing you towards something and your theology, may you may not have the theology to back that up or people may not have taught you that that might be the right thing, but yet you're still receiving you know, still receiving affirmations, you're still, you know, people are still pushing you forward. And so it really is hard. It takes a lot of, I would say, even submission to God to walk into that, right? Yes, exactly. I think the community makes you courageous, especially in in Nicaragua. So the the voices of women uh, were Help me make brave. Mm-hmm. Help make me brave. Yeah. So my grandmother was a strong woman of faith. So mm-hmm. she was a matriarch in the faith. And yeah. again, Im- embedded in a, a patriarchal culture. However, we had strong matriarchs in the faith exactly. in the church that were listened to, elders that had to be respected, and uh, their theology was strong. My grandma didn't go to no seminary. Yeah. My aunts, my tias did not go to no seminary. Oh, but they were the first ones up and the last ones to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I would wake up in the mornings and see my abuelita, you know, sitting on her rocking chair with a black Bible, just mouthing the words, mm-hmm. reading out loud. You know, the Holy Spirit was teaching her. She yeah. would sit at the feet of Jesus mm-hmm. and be with him, be in his presence. And the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text. Mm-hmm. And so... Her as a matriarch of the faith, she, interestingly enough, my father was the pastor, but it was my grandmother, my abuelita, who prayed me into the kingdom. Mm. She taught me how to read the Bible. She taught me how to memorize the Bible. She taught Mm -hmm. me how to memorize the words and how to understand it. She taught me how to pray. Mm. And so my faith is closely knitted to a matriarch of the Mm -hmm. faith. My two tias also were like mothers to me. And everyone mothers you in Nicaragua. Yeah. You know, I'm sure it's very similar yeah. in Cuba. Latino culture. Everyone tells yeah. you what to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or what you should be doing or not doing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> for better yeah. or for worse. <laughs> and so whether you want it or not, their unsolicited advice mm-hmm. is there. But however, their faith 
informed my faith. Yeah. Their faith nurtured my calling before I could even name, oh, I'm a pastor. Mm-hmm. But I am the result of their prayers, mm-hmm. of uh, their discipleship, mm-hmm. humble and strong discipleship, humble and strong prayers. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them never went to college. My yeah. never went to college. But their faith, I wish I had their mm-hmm. faith. Their prayer life, I wish I did have mm-hmm. their prayer life. My my tia, my tia Sela, um, told me just a few days ago that she wakes up at four in the morning every every day to pray for me and all wow. of my primos and primas. Wow. For all, by name, by name, all my children. Well, I just have one child, mm-hmm. and all you know, her grandchildren, everyone by name. Incredible. I don't know. The seminary class that teaches me how to do that. Yeah. But listen, I want to be on her prayer list. Yeah. Because their her prayers move mountains. Yeah. You know. Amen. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, the community, uh, the the fam- the sense of familia in the church in Nicaragua, the sense of just familia culturally, mm-hmm. is drawing some things out of you. It, it was my tia saying, Ines, you must leave. Ines, you're going to teach uh, Sunday school this son this this coming mm-hmm. Sunday to the to the niños. You're going to sit, teach the story of a Samaritan woman. I was 14 years old. Nobody taught me how to do that. <laughs> but they were teaching me. Yeah. They were discipling me. Mm-hmm. And so the matrix of the faith in, in Latino theology are very important. Yes. We underestimate that abuelita theology, mm-hmm. that theology. Yeah. That comes from those strong women of faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beautiful thing. When I started getting into Mujerista theology, it was that, that, you know, women, Latina women, they have, they, they should have in theological circles their own agency because mm-hmm. they do have, like, we, right. we don't need to tell them what faith is. They know that's right. what faith that's is, right. you know, <laughs> like, same thing with my abuela. I mean, she got here from Cuba. Her husband died a few years mm-hmm. later and she raised three kids. She had a, her own business. She, in a country mm-hmm. that she didn't even, she mm-hmm. still doesn't speak the language, you yeah. know, and, and she's. It. And so I think that's, that's right. such a beautiful thing about the matriarchs, as you yes. said, and they yes. they are just as even more important, right. you know, than Absolutely. than the patriarchs. And so they need to be celebrated yeah. and and yeah. taken into serious consideration in yes. the same way. Because um, yes. they didn't go to seminary, but right. they have that faith that you know has has informed all of us has right. moved all of us so mm-hmm. that's beautiful yeah awesome. i hear echoes of my story and your abuelita as well my, my abuelita was a single mom of three mm-hmm. and she had to so wash awesome. clothes mm-hmm. for rich people and mm-hmm. iron clothes and sew clothes for rich people mm-hmm. and that's how she made it she was exactly. a teacher though so she had like a mindset she i i wish i knew what she could have become what more she could have been yeah. had she been able to go to college or oh, seminary yeah. but Nobody could teach her uh, how to preach a sermon on dependence because you knew, she mm-hmm. knew dependency. Yeah. She made a way out of where there was no way. She exactly. did something out of nothing. She fed her children. She mm-hmm. often talked about how she would pray over the food when it was a small amount and it would just multiply. Mm-hmm. You can't learn that in a classroom. You, yeah. you learn that in the, in, in the classroom of adversity. Yeah. You know, that faith gets forged in the fire and so our mujeres of the faith which we see them in the, in the biblical text as well you know the five women in the genealogy of jesus mm-hmm. they're interrupting the story and they're scandalous women but they were innovative they were powerful they were astute mm-hmm. they were tenacious they were resilient yes amen. in spite of the circumstances that they were they they did not become victims mm-hmm. um, and that's why the holy spirit i think put their names exactly. in the genealogy of jesus and Matthew 1. You know, so and I, we have those mujeres now. Mm-hmm. We have those Tamars and Rahabs. And mm-hmm. We have them in our stories. Mm-hmm. But we have to find them because they are hidden. They are mm-hmm. unseen. Their stories don't get told. Yeah. Here we are. You and I are here because of them. Exactly. You know I mean? 
Thank Amen. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, so good. <laughs> so I want to go back to um, your time in Arkansas um, because that is so formative, you know, for you as becoming a pastor and and all of that. And I just want to, you know, kind of hear about some challenges of being a brown woman, a pastor in, you know, the very conservative, um, complementarian South. Um, and also just some some good things from that, some things mm-hmm. that you've learned or some ways that, you know, like you said, your church affirmed you. And I, I believe that's mm-hmm. God affirming you. And so um, just some challenges and some things to celebrate from that mm-hmm. time. I celebrate that it was in Arkansas that the, that first church plant that I uh, became involved in affirmed me and, and saw my calling and named it and called it out of me and allowed me spaces. You know, I was 23 years old. I didn't know nothing about nothing. Mm. Uh, I didn't know anything about planting a church. Yeah. And yet um, a pastor saw something in me, just like my father saw something in me at 14, and gave me a chance. Mm. I feel like I was the least qualified. I, I had no business planting churches. Mm. But however, what it forces you to do is to, to lean into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was creating and co-creating something in us. And and we birthed this church in the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And the vision of that church was for it to, because of the land of Arkansas, then the historical racism in Arkansas, we built a church that was crossing over dividing minds yeah. and, uh, and walls of hostility. Mm-hmm. So the church was multi-ethnic along black, white, and Latino, mm-hmm. um, mostly. And then we also have about 30 different nationalities represented. But we knew that the stroke, that the historical struggle because of the land and the mm-hmm. place that we were in um, ha- brought a lot of baggage. Yeah. So to just say, oh, we're going to get together, it wasn't, it wasn't a, just about mm-hmm. sitting next to another person yeah. that looked different than you. But that even even that was an anomaly for Arkansas in mm-hmm. 2001. Yeah. And so I, so I appreciated that beautiful co-creation that we had mm-hmm. birthing that church. We were building the plane as we were flying mm-hmm. it, kind of moments in season. I would say that those eight years church planting were some of the most formative mm-hmm. in my ministry life. But I also faced the demon of racism straight mm-hmm. on for the first yeah. time, felt it, uh, felt it become exposed more. Mm-hmm. The demon of racism, uh, the hate and hostility towards, um, you know, black and brown skin mm-hmm. in Arkansas. And as I learned the history of Arkansas, as you learned that it was a lynching state, it's not just historical racism, but I think it's a spiritual reality. It's mm-hmm. powers and principalities mm-hmm. behind, uh, you know, systems and structures that oppress people and keep people marginalized and down. So studying the history of the Little Rock Nine, the first mm-hmm. nine African-American students who integrated Central High, uh, Central High School and how... Um, you know, uh, the president had to federalize the, the National Guard mm-hmm. to escort, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so Little Rock is a monument in the civil rights movement. Yeah. And so I jumped into that story and I learned the story of the land. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that 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 story was going to present some challenges for the Latinos in the community to later come in Mm -hmm. and also become integrated into the history of Arkansas. So you see this thread Mm -hmm. of oppression, this thread of historical racism that is still going to fear uh, just another ethnic group mm-hmm. and keep and not know how to welcome them and integrate them. So that was difficult mm-hmm. because I felt it in my skin mm-hmm. uh, often, more often than I ever did when I lived uh, in Texas. Um, 
you know, things were said of me, things were said to me, uh, microaggressions, racial microaggressions, and as a female uh, Latina who was educated, I didn't fit the norm. Yeah. So I wasn't walking around like that thinking mm-hmm. I would receive that, but it surprised me. It yeah. shocked me, you know. Mm-hmm. Or anytime that we, um, our church, would try to educate on racism and how it was not just a sin to be called out, but a social reality that we had to deal with. Like, yeah. how did racism affect how we did church? Yeah. How, how we othered and who was in charge and who had power and how we were trying to learn about each other's people groups. I was quite surprised um, that some uh, believers, whom, whom I love, um, did not want to talk about racism. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to just, can't we just all get along? Yeah. Can't we just all mm-hmm. get along? Just sit together with me in the pew, sing a few songs in Spanish, but let's not talk about the history, the difficult history mm-hmm. of this country, to know how to dismantle systems okay. and structures that are still oppressing people now. Mm-hmm. And that was very hard. Mm-hmm. That was very hard. I will never forget, um, I was giving a cultural competency workshop one time, and I was just talking about... Um, uh, you know, racism and in, in educational systems in Arkansas and about the first African-American student who uh, integrated uh, University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And I just telling that story. And a woman got extremely upset mm. with me. And she said, you cannot be teaching U.S. Mm. American history. You cannot be teaching this. And you uh, are a foreigner. Oh and sh- you should not be teaching about this. Um, and you're speaking against uh, my country. Like, she took it very mm. personally. And so I also saw this, um, I've never seen this spirit of nationalism rise up Mm. so strongly. And I'll never forget, she said, in my home, we have three values that we go by, God, family, and country. Mm. And you just touched my country. And I said, uh, you know, we're we're talking about difficult, the dark history of the United States, not for me to denigrate so much the United States, but to understand where we have come from where we are and how do we need to dismantle these things that keep us from Mm -hmm. having real reconciliation and not cheap reconciliation. Cheap reconciliation is just sitting next to me and uh, just saying, well, we have a Latina here Mm -hmm. and her soul is going into heaven. Mm -hmm. But true reconciliation is knowing that you also care about what happens to the bodies of of our souls, you know, Mm -hmm. to what happens to black and brown bodies and Mm -hmm. and the other colored body. And so that that was an awakening for me, um, and it was right there happening in the faith community, and it was a difficult struggle. Yeah, it's a difficult struggle, and I had to grow. Some yeah. Challenges. <laughs> oh, well, I had to keep a tender heart and a tough skin. Yeah, and that was hard. I cried often. Yeah, I, I cried can imagine. Until I found my voice, my voice in the work of racial reconciliation. It came uh, with with wounds and aggressions mm-hmm. towards me. Yeah, I can imagine. And, um, you were talking about how in order to dismantle, you know, the oppressive structures in our society, we need to look back. We can't pretend that that didn't exist. And something that I always say, because it's been hard for me too, you know, in my own journey, like learning about the history of the church in Cuba and like the colonization mm. there as well. Right. And just, right. um, you know, wow, Cubans throughout their history have gone through a lot yes, of, a lot have. of oppression from so many different people and yeah. including Christian people that, you know, will, will say, yeah, we're here, you know, for Jesus and we're here to liberate, right. but they're not liberating. They're right. doing the opposite of that. And so right. something that I, I always say is that knowledge empowers and the more that we learn, the harder it is, but the more that we're free to empower and to dismantle, like you mm-hmm. said, and to rewrite the future of, you know, what's going to be yeah. a history in the future. Yeah. Right. So, right. Um, I think that's super important. Yeah. And so something that I, um, 
I know we we use this word a lot, you know, decolonize. And Mm -hmm. and, um, if you follow us on Twitter, you know, that's a word that I throw around a lot. But I want to hear what um, decolonizing your faith means to Mm -hmm. you. I know everybody Mm -hmm. has a different decolonization or deconstruction story. But what's, you know, what does that mean to you? Thank you for asking that because I have grown more and more in the knowledge of what that means for me. Um, And it takes up a couple of forms. First, it's decolonization from the moment of my conception, from the womb. Uh, because my mother was Spanish and my father is Nicaraguan. I say was because she's already passed away. Uh, so, so I have both the colonizer blood and the colonized running through me. And it always felt throughout my childhood that I had one foot in Spain and one foot in, in the Americas, right? Mm-hmm. In Nicaragua. Yeah. And felt the tension of that story, felt the tension of actually being mestiza, you know, half white European and half Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. And as I'm growing into my identity, I in in Nicaragua, and then until I came to the U.S., I realized, you know what, I'm I'm not I am Nicaraguan more so than I am Spanish because that's where I grew up. Yeah. And so culturally, my identity is Nicaraguan, and and living in that tension of oh, but and then studying the history of Spain colonizing the Americas, I actually felt it in my body. Sometimes I felt ashamed to say. I was born in Spain. I would hide that from people. Yeah. What I what I was hiding from was I did not want to be associated with the colonizer, mm. and I didn't want to be associated with Columbus Day, and I yeah. did not want to be associated with you know the white Europeans that came and raped and took land mm. and took women. Yeah, yeah. In the Americas, you know. However, um, seeing uh, you know in, in our home we would joke about that, and my 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 parents of course got married to each other. I saw how love covered a multitude of sins, <laughs> <laughs> and so I lived in the tension. But I also saw a sort of uh, small microcosmic reconciliation mm. in my parents' marriage. It's beautiful, yeah. That, that could happen, and that both my parents rejected the things that they each did not want from their own culture, that things from Spain that my mother was like, no, yeah, I'm not down with the colonization. <laughs> or even my dad saying, no, I'm going to reject being the stereotypical mm-hmm. uh, Latino man, yeah. right? And so they each had to do that, and it shaped me, and it mm-hmm. informed me. But I always walked in that tension of feeling um, in between both worlds, yeah. you know, in between both worlds. Then when it came to just my identity and my voice as a woman and uh, understanding and seeing how we work with a lot of Canadians and U.S. Americans who came to Nicaragua to do humanitarian oh, work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where I also saw a uh, unintentional colonization. Mm-hmm. We believe that if the Canadians brought it or the U.S. Americans brought it, it was better than what we had in Nicaragua. Or we needed them to guide us, yeah. right? We needed their theology. We needed their resources. We needed, you know... And so Nicaragua did need a lot of help because during the war and post-war, there was a lot of a lot of awful things going on. There was so much help that was needed. So we were so grateful. But I didn't even realize how I was turning towards uh, uh, the missionaries that came, thinking that they had something better theologically than I had. And so we, we wanted to learn but not realize that we also had riches mm-hmm. in Nicaragua as well, rich theology and rich mm-hmm. stories and rich adversity that experience. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it was nobody like intended to do that, but it was happening. And so 
I realized that I was colonized when I when I realized I don't have to think like a white male, mm-hmm. and I don't have to talk like a white male, I don't have to preach like a white male, yeah. because I thought that was the perfect way to do it, and that was the only way to do it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it silenced my my voice as a Latina, and so I had to become liberated from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I had to decolonize my mind and go, no, there are some beautiful things that I can learn from my fellow uh, white American sisters mm-hmm. and brothers, but yeah. I also have something to contribute to the Exactly. And uh, I didn't want to become complicit in my, you know, I had internalized my own oppression feeling like I was less than mm-hmm. or not good enough if it wasn't a U.S. American. Mm-hmm. And um, so so all, all of that was happening as I was growing up and as, as I um, saw, you know, Americans come and Canadians come as well to Nicaragua. Nobody was intending to do that. It was just... The, just the, just the mess, just like the mess of it, of, of, yeah. of all of that. Um, and so when I came to seminary two years ago, I became even more aware mm-hmm. of that colonization theologically mm-hmm. um, and to learn to approach the text with my own lens and to approach it as a female, to approach it as a Latina, mm-hmm. and that that was good enough and that I had a lot to contribute to the text, a lot to contribute to theology. And so when I read Mujerista theology, when I read Native American theologians and Asian American theologians and women theologians, it opened a world to me that I did not know was there and I didn't realize how much um, whiteness had centered my theology and therefore it had affected my identity. I had a distorted identity of myself and I had a dispossessed identity and I was trying to be something, somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not really who God made me to be because I thought brown was bad and that white was better. But in those circles, nobody ever said that. Yeah. But it, that's how we internalize it, I think, in Latin America. And so I think that's a result of just years of, you know, the land being invaded, the land being colonized, the people being dispossessed, mm-hmm. uh, lands taken, mm-hmm. uh, languages distorted. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's courses taught about that. Yeah. Stuff, but that's, that's an analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What it means to be, what it means to decolonize. So I had to cut the interview a bit early. Like I said, I was having trouble figuring this whole mic thing out and that crackling noise you started to hear had only gotten worse. So to close, I'd like to summarize the last few minutes of the recorded part that you didn't get to hear. You know that dispossessed identity Ines mentions? Well, we chat about the importance of reclaiming our identity as Latina women. This involves reclaiming our roots and reclaiming that abuelita theology of survival and strength that isn't taught in seminary. Part of this reclaiming has to do with the reclaiming of stories and metaphors and stones of remembrance from our culture that may not be in the mainstream textbooks. It's about a reclaiming of a new identity that's not distorted or diseased by colonization. Ines reminds us that God is a storytelling God and stories matter. And oftentimes, the beautiful and diverse stories, particularly of women of color, can be, even unintentionally, suppressed when faith is taught that it has to look one specific way. But like we mentioned, the Bible is a book of stories with real people and real problems and every situation looks so different. So I echo Ines in that it's important to reclaim our stories as Latinas and as women this involves decentering male-centered theology so that the stories of women in the Bible and in history are told in fresh and new perspectives. Ines mentions an interesting exercise that she likes to engage in. She'll let women like Tamar and Rahab speak for themselves. 
In her theological imagination, she wonders, what would they say about themselves? Why do we still call Rahab a prostitute? She explains that we must bring our bodies and hearts fully as females in the story of God because in the creation narrative, it says that male and female God created them. Both men and women are created in God's image, which means that there's a feminine aspect of the divine in our souls and we should let that creativity of the Holy Spirit flourish in us so that we could truly experience the full personhood of God. So thank you for listening. You can find Ines on Twitter at at Ines McBride, that's I-N-E-S-M-C-B-R-Y-D-E. And check out my website, catarms.com, for the links to some of Ines's sermons. The problem is that anytime we draw a line or build a wall between us and them, whoever they are, Jesus is always on the other side, whoever they are. Recordemos que somos la familia de Dios y todos somos bienvenidos a su mesa. Nadie es dueño de la mesa. Dios es dueño y Él hizo la mesa con la madera de la cruz ensangrentada. Los que están lejos ahora están cerca. Y el Cordero merece la recompensa de su sufrimiento. Su familia toda comiendo a la mesa. May we remember that we are God's familia and all are welcome at His table. Nobody owns the table. God owns the table. Built with the wood from a bloodstained cross.